Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Hatchbend Apostolic Church web broadcast. In our society today, some, and yes, sadly, maybe even most, question the value of preaching in their lives. But we still believe what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In essence, Paul preached that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And so that's why we still place such a high value on the preached word of God in agreement to the scripture. And so now I'd like to thank you again for joining us for a message from the pulpit of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You may be seated this morning. If you would like, you can join me in the book of John chapter 15. We'll just read one verse of scripture, John 15 and 13. Today we're going to conclude our study, this series uh, on the DNA of a disciple. Love is the defining trait that Christian faith should adhere to. It's the evidence of Christian faith. And so for the last three weeks, we've talked about the DNA of a disciple the DNA of a, of, a, of a disciple is love. And so we talked about the priority of love. We covered the measure of love. And last week we talked about the endurance of love. DNA is a complex genetic code. It's present in all living organisms. It's a molecule that contains all the information needed and necessary to build and maintain an organism. When organisms reproduce, a portion of their DNA is passed along to their offspring, and it transfers traits that are apparent in the original organism into that which it produces, carrying on things such as pre-existing conditions, outward features, certain mannerisms, and personality. And so today we're going to cover the subject, the DNA of love. Love is the defining characteristic or the defining trait, or at least it should be, of every disciple of Jesus Christ. John 15 and 13, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. There is no greater love than this that a man lay down his life for his friends. Jesus loved until the very end. He loved even in the most difficult of times. In the context of Scripture, we find ourselves this morning in John chapter 15. This love was not only deeply held, but it was evidently displayed. You see, where we are here in Scripture this morning was not a very nice, as some would like to depict, circumstance. The room was tight. The atmosphere was heavy. Supper had ended, and things were about to get a little awkward. Although the supper was among friends, tensions flared. Not only were there guests present, but there were certain uninvited guests there, 
as well. Friends gathered, but with them came apprehension. With them came fear and pride. Some of them argued over who would be the greatest. One wrestled with greed while another dealt with the pride of his own heart. Judas Iscariot had made up his mind. He already knew and had made his decision of what he would do to Jesus. And Jesus had full understanding. He understood what Judas planned. He knew what was in the room and what was going on. But he also knew that his hour was come, that he should depart from this world. And he also understood that he had everything in his hands. He held everything in his hands. He had been given everything into his hands, possessing all power in heaven and in earth. With all power at the mere utterance of his voice, he could have taken full authority in that moment, bringing everything to a screeching halt. Jesus could have ended it all right then and right there, and understandably so. But instead of swift judgment, instead of exacting preemptive retribution, Jesus displayed unconditional love. Instead of an iron fist, the disciples witnessed absolute humility. As he laid aside his outer garments, he girded himself with a towel and washed their feet. Jesus laid aside understandable animosity and put on humility. In that moment, he displayed and demonstrated the posture and the attitude that he expected his disciples to mirror. The reason was clear. John 13 and 1, Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father. Having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. God manifested himself in the flesh because of love. And he selflessly lived as a servant because of love. And he expects the same of every true believer here today. And so, is it the greatest or is it the best? Certainly a question that is answered throughout our society. Selfless service is a foreign concept in much of our society today. You see acts of nobility, you see acts of selflessness scattered throughout, but there's no doubt that our society is riddled with selfishness. Selfish service is foreign because our culture, at least here in America, is geared towards striving to be the best at whatever we are attempting to accomplish. We want to be the best employee. We want to be the best spouse. We want to be the best athlete or the favored child. Typically, no one wants to be second. Everyone wants to be first or the best. Ad campaigns are riddled with this connotation. They're riddled with self-promotion 
touting their products as the best that you can buy. You don't hear ads that say it's just okay or you might be able to get by with it. No, they're saying that this is the best product that you can buy. And if you buy it, you'll be the best you that you can be for owning it. And so no one wants to be mediocre, but all want to be the greatest. And the title of greatest usually comes to those who have made great achievements. To be great usually means to be extraordinary or notable or conduct some extreme act. So when it comes to Christian discipleship, if we apply this Western way of thinking, it seems that greatness would be measured by the quantity or the quality of good deeds. Or perhaps greatness should be weighed on the scales of giftedness. However, the prevailing the prevailing and overarching and teaching regarding discipleship in my Bible says that love is the greatest of all Christian attributes. The Apostle Paul emphatically declared in 1 Corinthians 13 and 13, and now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. This word charity is translated Agape, it is a word that is used throughout the New Testament. It means love that is affection or benevolence, specifically charity, which is deep and dear love. It means to have a feast of love. That means that there is an abundance of the love. And so in our New Testament, we see that the focus should be on love. Yet oftentimes, our focus is lost because we're human and we tend to be complacent. We tend to lose focus. T.F. Tenney famously taught and, and wrote a book on the subject, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. I told Kaylin that last night. She said, wait a minute. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Well, what's the main thing? I said love is the main thing, and we need to keep the main thing the main thing. See, we trouble, we have trouble keeping the main thing the main thing when it comes to Christian discipleship because we tend to drift and we tend to look elsewhere and look other places. But the main thing has always been, and it will always be, love. Now, a very frightening connotation that I've heard through the years, certainly not here, not behind this pulpit, probably from Miami to the North Pole, I've heard it somewhere, said sometime, is that when preachers preach on love or teach on love, that that's just such a shallow subject and perhaps compromise is on the horizon. That we're going to somehow compromise some of our beliefs or some of our doctrine because we're just going to stick to love and loving people. But I'm here to rebuke that sentiment because Jesus said in John 13 and 34, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye have love one to another. 
Hear me. Love is not a shallow subject. Love is so deep and it is so much more important than we could ever understand. And love, hear me, is much harder than it looks. See, love, love is what the world needs. And love is what the world needs to see. They need to see real love, unpretentious love, genuine love, love that is without pretense or without presumption. And hear me today, love that is without some precaution. It needs to be love that is without strings attached and does not require any reciprocation. That is what is required. I wrestled with this particular illustration for a couple of days, but I feel it's pertinent. A song that was written and recorded in 1965 during the most tumultuous times in our nation's history is called What the World Needs Now is Love. A man by the name of Burt Bacharach and Hal David, they wrote this, and perhaps it embodies this overall request. In an excerpt from a book, the story behind the song, how David recalls his experience writing. He said, I would drive to Manhattan on a daily commute and I would ponder song lyrics and ideas. He said, one day I thought of the first two lines of the song, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little of. Before I got to Manhattan, he says, I had the rest of the chorus set the way it is today, but I needed a verse section. When I began to write the first verse, everything I thought about just seemed off. We don't need a submarine to go deeper. I just tried and tried and showed it to the other man, but then I put it away and went on to something else. He says that in a month or two, he just tried again, but it was always the same thing. He said, I needed something to compare it to, and everything I thought about had nothing to do with the person that I was talking to, God. It took more time to write these lyrics than any other. I realized that I needed to write the antithesis, or at least what he thought was, what we didn't need. And one day on the ride in New York, it came to him. Lord, we don't need another mountain. There are mountains and hillsides enough to climb. There are oceans and rivers enough to cross, enough to last to the end of time. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. But hear me today, if only someone could have let Mr. David know, or if only somehow he could have understand that God did not only give us mountains and hills and meadows and fields, but God has given us his love. Because love is what motivates God. Love is what caused him to manifest himself in the flesh and reveal himself unto man. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave himself. You hear me today? Love is why Jesus was sent. And over and over and over he clarified and he underscored the preeminence of love. That love was and is to become before all. It is to bear all. It is to believe all. And it is to hope all. You hear me today? If we don't hear anything else, love is the greatest thing that we can manifest in this world love is the greatest and so if we want to be great disciples we must above all strive to love 
We must keep the main thing the main thing because it is most assuredly what the world needs and it is what the world needs to see and they will only see it in us. Real love, pure love, undefiled and unpolluted and they will only get it from the body of Christ. It is the only thing on this earth and in this earth that has the DNA of love is the church. Hear me now, and I'm going to kind of skate out here on a little bit of a limb here, but I believe that love will be what separates everything in this world. Love will be what separates true Christian discipleship from everything else that is false. I'll tell you why. Because love and real love cannot be counterfeited. It cannot be faked. Real love is genuine. And real love will be shown. And all the signs and the wonders that may be done by everything else, love will be the dividing factor because they cannot reproduce love. When Moses stood in front of Pharaoh and he threw his staff on the ground and it turned into a snake the rest of those men standing there did the same thing they threw their staffs on the ground and they turned into snakes hear me the enemy in this end time can reproduce miracles signs and wonders but the love of the church will be what separates all of those false hoods real love unpretentious genuine it cannot be counterfeited because there will be evidence to genuine love. We simply cannot afford to appear to be something that we're not. You see, in one way or another, we've all had experiences where we've been deceived by appearances. We may have judged a person based on the way they looked. Perhaps they appeared be someone or something that we might want to get to know better, but the closer we got, the more we realized that they didn't exactly portray the person they were appearing to be. We've all had experiences with products that we thought looked good, yet upon closer inspection, we discovered unnoticed flaws. We were enamored with the beauty of something that turned out to be horribly wrong in the long run. There's an old saying that says the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Perhaps you've heard the condensed version, the proof is in the pudding. Now, I don't preach these before I get here to Kaylin, but i got to tell on her again. I read this to her last night, and I said, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. She could see it on my laptop. But I skipped over that part. I said, the proof of the pudding, or the proof is in the pudding. She said, it says the proof of the pudding is in the eating. I said, yeah, but I skipped over that. I just said the condensed version. I said, what I'm trying to say is the proof of the pudding is in the eating. The proof of the is in the pudding. The proof is getting to know something and being up close to something. Then you find out what it really is about. She whispered, I love pudding. <laughs> I was like, we're done. We're done. Somebody whispers that to me this morning, I'm done. But the proof is in the pudding. The success of discipleship can only be tested by its proof. Or more precisely, what Jesus said, by its fruit. He said in Matthew 7 and 20, Wherefore by their fruits you shall know them. 
And so there's many different attributes to Christian discipleship. Please, I don't want to be misunderstood this morning. We need stewardship and prayer and inward and outward holiness and witnessing. We need all of those things. But the foundational proof of that is love. That's what's got to be at the core. Without it, everything else, it just becomes bitter and empty because love must be the motivating factor. It's what makes disciples beautiful both to God and to the world around them. However, the love of God is not based on a superficial appearance. The love of God is lived out. It must be shown. And so we have to understand that, and we have to constantly be reminded and remind ourselves that love is not merely a feeling. I'll go one step further than that and say love is not merely an intention. I can intend to do a lot of things, but if I don't actually do it, it'll be left undone. And so love is not a feeling, and love is not just an intention, but love must be seriously acted out, and it must be lived in action. Now, we don't do things just to, just to be doing things, and we're not doing all of these things so that we can be saved. We're doing these things because we are saved because Jesus Christ has filled our hearts. He's filled us with love and it makes us want to reiterate that and live that out in front of people. It's the work of the Holy Ghost in our lives. It it should prompt us. It should drive us to carry out the mandate of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to say something real harsh right now, but please take it in the spirit that I say it. The spirit should not only want to drive us to only want to go to church, to a building. Well, the spirit should drive us every day to want to give what we have away to a lost and dying world. See, once we're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, we are each called to works of righteousness, not for justification, but because of Jesus' love in justifying us. James 2 and 26, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also and you simply cannot have faith and you simply cannot have love without displaying it in your actions our faith and our love and our love for God is supposed to be lived out and the love of God should be manifest in our lives so to reiterate again everything that we do must be rooted and grounded in love every work must find its genesis in love. We are commanded in Scripture to do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, Colossians 3 and 17. Everything you do, you do it. In word or deed, you do it all in the name of the Lord. And so when we are born again of water and of spirit, we represent that name Therefore, all that we do in that name must be accompanied with the attributes 
that are associated with that name. Supernatural and noteworthy things that we may do will be meaningless without basic love. One of the most beautiful things in the New Testament, one of the most beautiful things in New Testament Scripture is the Spirit birth. It is the baptism of the Holy Ghost. It is a supernatural power that takes over our lives and makes us and molds us. It is His Spirit. But being born again is only a highlight in the journey of discipleship. Jesus promised those that would be believing on Him as the Scripture said that they would do greater works than He would do. And so these are exciting experiences for any believer however they are only a part of a greater narrative of discipleship discipleship hear me now is not only receiving the baptism of the Holy Ghost well I figured it would get a little bit tight right here but it's not only the baptism of the Holy Ghost and I am not minimizing that 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 experience it is a spiritual experience that is not only suggested but it is mandated it is absolute it is absolutely necessary for 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 salvation but Peter did not just say to repent and to be baptized in the name of Jesus with the promise of the infilling of the Holy Ghost with that being the end of the statement. They didn't all pack their bags and go home after that. No, the Bible says that with many other words did he testify and exhort saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. That means come out from among them and be separate. And then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And hear me now, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Receiving the Holy Ghost, baptism in Jesus' name, repentance is not the only tenant to the apostles' doctrine. He said they continued steadfast in the apostles' doctrine, in prayers, and in fellowship, and in breaking of bread, and going from house to house, and praying together, and being together. That says to me that they loved one another. They loved being together. They worked together. They loved together. They went out together. They won souls together. They did it all by the love of Jesus Christ, and they did it together. And so what I'm saying is this. There's great danger in receiving the Holy Spirit but not walking in the Holy Spirit. I know this is supposed to be teaching but I can't help it. We can't only receive the gift but we've got to receive the gift and then we've got to use the gift. We've got to allow the Spirit of God to lead us and to guide us and to make us and mold us into what He's called us to be. So the only way that I can do that is I've got to allow the love of God to work through me. Not just to look the part but to act the part and to live the part. Paul warns us of three dangers beginning in 1 Corinthians 13. He said the first danger is having the sign of receiving the Spirit, but not walking in 
the Holy Spirit and allowing the Spirit to develop love in us. 1 Corinthians 13 and 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. In other words, as wonderful as speaking with tongues, as wonderful experience as that is, as wonderful as having God come upon you and having you do exploits, speaking with tongues is such a supernatural experience. Paul said if you do it without charity or without love in your life, it's just noise. So we can celebrate the birth all we want. And we do, and we should. But we can't only celebrate the birth without the growth of Christian character and love because without it, it'll all wind up fruitless and empty. That's why I believe, and this is just me, that's why I believe where some don't hold on to this. They can come in, Five minutes later, be speaking with other tongues, they can walk out those doors and you never see them again. It's because they didn't allow the Spirit of God to take root in their life and lead them and guide them. And so we can celebrate birth, but without growth, it'll be nothing. Secondly, Paul outlined a danger in equating the exercising of spiritual gifts with overall value in the kingdom. It's going to get quiet again, but that's all right. You see, we typically view people that have spiritual gifts, such as prophecy or knowledge or miraculous faith, as being spiritual elites. We look to them as spiritual elites because God uses them to do certain things, miraculous things. These are very, again, I say again, please don't misunderstand me. These are very powerful and they are absolutely needed in the body of Christ. We need the gifts of the Spirit operating among us. We need the power of the Holy Ghost walking among us. But these gifts should not be the standalone measure of spiritual growth or maturity. 1 Corinthians 13 and 2. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. It's certainly a very frightening declaration that we could possess the faith to move mountains and have the ability to prophesy and have the knowledge of all mysteries, yet lack charity. Paul says it would be nothing and we would be nothing without charity. Thirdly, Paul equates, says there's a danger in equating sacrifice with acceptance. According to Romans 12 and 1, every disciple is called to be a living sacrifice. However, Paul said that sacrifice all by itself 
is not sufficient. 1 Corinthians 13 and 3, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth, profiteth me nothing. And so we could sell all we have. We could give everything that we have away to the poor. And we could even give our own lives a sacrifice. But Paul said, if love is not at the core, the profitability to us will be nothing. Great sacrifice and great works alone do not, ex- do not equate to the acceptance of Jesus. My grandmother always said there's a lot of bad people in this world that do good things. And so we can't, accept, we can't equate just doing good things with an overall acceptance of him. If we're going to be accepted by him, the picture could not be clearer. Love is above all and must be at the foundation of all the gifts and all the works of the Spirit. We must speak the same language that he speaks. And a true believer, a true and submitted believer will speak the language of God's kingdom. Language is the foundation and is the meaningful communication in everything that we do. In order to effectively communicate with anyone, you typically must speak the same language. If you've ever visited a foreign country, perhaps tried to express your feelings or your need for information, you've encountered a dilemma and a broken, uh, a broken communication And so similarly, many relationships have failed due to the misunderstanding of love's ultimate language. We have all heard the saying, and it stands true here, same today. Actions speak louder than words. And so effective communication takes place when the hearer understands what is being said. And if what we are speaking does not line up with the way that we are acting, then communication is undermined and thus it is ineffective. And furthermore, it will inevitably undermine credibility. Saying you love someone is hollow if it's not followed by action because love in action is the language of God's kingdom. Love must ultimately be demonstrated in everything that we do. 1 John 3 and 16, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And so when disciples do the work of God, when they proceed to give and forgive and serve and sacrifice and build others up, they are in effect speaking fluently in the language of God's love. That is then and only then when we will speak the same language that he speaks. That's the only way. And equally, equally, Love must be accompanied by the word of truth. Truth truth can certainly, certainly cut close at times. Truth can hurt. The old adage that truth hurts is certainly an accurate assessment at times. And so the truth must be spoken. But the truth must be spoken in love. 
Now, this proves very difficult for some. Some would just spout it out. Don't worry about who it cuts along the way. But hear me. As disciples of Jesus Christ, and as we become more and more rooted in the love of God, God's voice is heard clearer through all that is done rather than what it is said. What seems impossible will become possible when we get rooted and grounded in the love of God. There's a very powerful, very powerful passage of Scripture that we quote quite often. We only usually quote the last part of it. But I submit to you today that this is what can be accomplished ultimately in every single one of our lives. Ephesians 3 and 17 through 20. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. And here's what we like to quote. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. If we succinctly read that together, we can understand more of what God is saying to us here today. And we can understand more of what God is trying to accomplish through us here today. Succinctly read, we can understand what being full of God's love will actually produce. That Christ may dwell in you by faith, being rooted and grounded in love. That's what's going to help us comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that you might be filled with the fullness of God and then the exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us can take place. Hear me today. Throughout the Gospels we see that Jesus was moved with compassion. Throughout the Gospels we see that he was moved by the faith of people and by their need to be next to him and be with them and his compassion upon them provided a platform for the miraculous work of God to take place. And so similarly when we are completely filled with the love of God the love of God will be what will empower us and to help us and provide us a platform for the miraculous power of God to take place. Hear me, we're not seeking a sign. We're not going after the sign. But when we get full of the love of God the love of God will be what compels us to go and my 
Bible says that if you'll go, the signs will follow. And so what will drive you to walk into a prison where men have committed such high and heinous crimes and stand behind a pulpit and preach the love of God to them? I'm telling you that it's the love of God that would compel you to go. What would compel you to walk in your place of business tomorrow and look at the weary soul of the woman in the cubicle next to you and speak to her about the love of Jesus Christ. It will be the love of God that will wake you up at 5 o'clock in the morning to make you want to put your shoes on and go to that business and tell them about the love of God. And hear me, if we'll just step out in faith, if we'll let God use us and lead us and guide us, God will show us powerful and miraculous things. So I close with this. Consider the following excerpt from a book by a man by the name of Max Licato. He wrote a book called A Love Worth Giving. He says this, There's a malady that makes the black plague appear as mild as the common cold. Tally the death toll of all infections, fevers, and epidemics since the beginning of time, and you'll still fall short of the number claimed by this single infirmity. And forgive me for being one to tell you, but you're infected. You suffer from it. You're a victim. You're a disease carrier. You've shown the symptoms and you've manifested the signs. You have a case of, brace yourself, selfishness. Don't believe me? Suppose you're in a group photo. The first time you see the picture, where do you look? And if you look good, do you like the picture? If you're the only one who looks good, do you still like the picture? If some are cross-eyed and others have spinach in their teeth, do you still like the picture? If so, that makes it even more the fact that you have a bad case. But what about the physical manifestations? Clutching hands. Do your fingers ever wrap and close around your possessions? Protruding teeth, do fangs ever flare when you are interrupted or irritated? Heavy feet, when a neighboring car wants to cut in front of you, do you sense a sudden heaviness of foot on the accelerator? Extending shoulder, any inflammation from patting yourself on the back? And your neck, is it sore from keeping your nose in the air? But most of all, look into your eyes. Look long into your pupils. Do you see a tiny figure, an image of a person, an image of you? The self-centered see everything through self. Their motto, it's all about me. The flight schedule, the traffic, the dress styles, the worship styles, the weather, the work, whether or not one works, everything is filtered through the many me in the eye. Selfishness, such a condition can be fatal. Hear me today as I close, you can stand. Selfishness is and selfishness will be at the core of what Paul warned Timothy about in 2 Timothy 3. Selfishness will mark the perilous times. In the end, men shall be lovers of themselves. And so selfishness is the DNA of sin. By one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. However, selflessness is the DNA of love. 
yet by one man's obedience shall many be made righteous. I stand here today among you, not in front of you, but as if I could stand in the crowd with you and tell you, if we can get off of ourselves, and if we could get rid of ourselves, there is no telling what God can do through us and for us in this hour. And if we could get full of the love of God, there is no telling what God will do through us even in this community. If we'll get full of the love of God and allow it to compel us to go and love them and nurture them and disciple them, God will show us a great harvest in this end time. If you believe it, would you lift your hand and would you thank him for it in Jesus name we love you Lord we thank you for your mercy God we thank you for your word and we thank you Lord for your love toward us help us Lord not to just heat this up to ourselves and close up our this message has been brought to you today by the media ministry of Hatchbend Apostolic Church We pray that it's ministered to you in some way, and we'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to join us in service here at Hatchbend Apostolic. Our Sunday services begin at 10 a.m. and our Wednesday night service at 7.30 p.m. For any more information or to speak with our ministry staff, please feel free to call our church office at 386-935-2806, or you can visit the contact link here on our website. Again, thank you for listening, and we pray God's richest blessings on you and your family.